Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. And today we have really the privilege and honor of having Jason Greenblatt, the former White House Middle East envoy, uh, so well-known, speaks all over. And it's a great pleasure to have you on my program. Thank you so much for coming on. So happy to be with you, Steve. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. So I know you wrote a wonderful book. As a matter of fact, I'm partially through it. It's so fascinating, so interesting. And uh, I highly recommend it to anyone who's out there who would like to learn about the whole Middle East, uh, Abraham Accords. It's called In the Path of Abraham. And uh, tell me a little bit about why you decided to write the book. Sure. Well, originally, when I left the White House, I got a number of calls from big publishing houses asking me to do a book about Donald Trump. And when I told them that any book I write would be a positive book, because I, in the 23 years I worked with him, I only had positive experiences. I thought he did some amazing things as the president of the United States, in particular in the Middle East, which is an area that I'm passionate about. They lost interest rather quickly. They were really just interested ah. in a, a gossipy kind of book, a book of backstabbing and things like that. So I put it on the shelf. Then uh, some months later, somebody, a good friend of mine, convinced me that I was eyewitness to history sort of blessed and honored to be able to participate in some world-changing events. And I found a publisher who was willing to publish a book about these world-changing events. So I'm glad I did, because the truth is, although the book's been out about nine months now, it's become even more relevant today as the Middle East constantly changes, but it's changing in so many different good and bad ways. So the book has become extremely relevant, and even more people are interested in it today. Well, that's wonderful. So first of all, how's it selling? Selling very well, thank you. It's even being sold in Saudi Arabia. Nothing gives me greater joy than walking into a mall in Saudi Arabia, into a store, and seeing my book displayed among other books. There. Wow, that is—it's a special, um, special feeling when you wrote a, wrote a book. I I just did wrote a different book about something else about a, a mitzvah in the Torah, Kansipur, with stories. And I also feel the same way. Sometimes I walk into a city, I don't know anyone, and I walk into the Judaica store, and there's my book. It, it makes me feel good anyway. Uh, I know other people wrote books. I think the Jared, did Jared Kushner write a book also? Jared Kushner wrote a book as well. And so did David, of course, Friedman, and so did Aryeh Lightstone. So everyone wrote everyone wrote their own book. I was curious. I mean, I know everyone has their own like perception of what happened and their own their own take, which is great. What about from a factual point of view? Were there any differences at all between the four books, you think? I'm not sure, but it's important for people to remember, even if there were some differences, that we all saw things through our own lens. So J Jared and I worked very closely in the White House together, not just on Israel policy, but also Arab policy. David and I worked very closely together on Israel policy. And of course, Jared was involved. Arya was on the ground in Israel assisting David. So we each had, uh, we were each privy to different parts of American policy toward Israel, toward the Abraham Accords, toward Israeli-Palestinian issues. So to the extent there are differences, I suspect they're just because each of us had a different lens on the issues. 
Uh-huh. Have you read the other books yet or not? I'm in the middle of reading Jared's, and I have read David's. I haven't yet read Arya's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading them, as a matter of fact. I didn't even ask you when we started. We should have asked the first questions. What are you doing now? I mean, everyone knows you, and uh, have you gone back? You, well, you were one of the few people, actually, who spent a very short period of time in public life. Most of your time was spent in the private sector. So now you're back, and so what are you doing these days? Yeah, I think my wife and six kids would argue that it wasn't so short. It was nearly three years, which is a very long time when you're separate from your family living in Washington while they stayed in DC, in uh, New Jersey. But once I left the White House, I became a consultant. I mostly spend time doing what I call uh, building a Middle East 2.0. I connect Israeli and American companies with countries and companies in the Gulf. Uh, when I started at the White House, I never would have imagined the, the type of ties, business, cultural friendships that have been formed between Israel and the Arab countries, including those that haven't yet signed the Abraham Accords, friendships, Jewish communities, evangelical communities. It's really quite an exciting space to be. And you're actually talking to me, this in my first interview from a major announcement. I just joined the think tank, the Jerusalem Center of Public Affairs, as the senior oh, director of Arab-Israeli diplomacy. So I've added that to my exciting plate as well. Wow, really? So you're keeping busy, obviously. Keeping very busy. So I really so having that position really has changed the trajectory of your whole life, hasn't it, really, at this point? You're never going to go back to being a lawyer again, I don't think, right? Never say never. It's something I teach my kids. But it is hard to go back to, and I loved my career. I worked for Donald Trump for 20 years, worked at a big firm before that for a couple of years. I enjoyed what I did as a lawyer, but it is hard to go back to being a lawyer when you helped um, help shape policy and help create uh, historic peace agreements uh, in an area that hasn't seen historic peace agreements in decades. Right. No, there's no question about it. I don't think people understand the enormity of what you accomplished and what the administration accomplished. And I, we just came back through my trip through the Conference of Presidents we came back from the Gulf, and then we went to Israel and so on. And we saw firsthand uh, how meaningful it is. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I've always been interested to ask you this question. I mean, you left. I mean, I know family situations, but you kind of left before, before all the fun started. You were like, this when they all the announcements were coming out, and, and everyone was in the White House signing the agreements. And, and you were the one who kind of laid the foundation. And, and I was wondering when I would watch it, I go, where's Jason Greenblatt? Where? What happened? Like, did he leave a little bit too early? If it would have stayed another year, wow, it would have been would have been amazing, right? Well, these things are meant to transcend individuals, right? I helped. Uh, first of all, I created the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, which of course the Palestinians rejected before they even looked at it. I helped build the foundation for the Abraham Accords, and I was privileged and honored to be a part of it. I also am a husband and a father, and at some point after three years, when you're really done with the work and you don't know when and if anything will transpire, you have to take stock of what you've done and say, okay, it's time to go back home to be that husband, to be that father. And missing three years of one's family life takes a toll on a family. So yeah. uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Now, Avi Berkowitz took over. Was he, was he part of the team before? Did he just, I never heard of him before they announced that he was going to be taking your place, but I was, I, I presume he had been there part of the team the whole time and or not. Maybe yes. I'm wrong. No, oh. no, he was. I mean, he was a trusted deputy to Jared Kushner, a trusted person on the team. His involvement on what we did until I left was less so because he was busy handling some of the other things that Jared was involved in. Jared had a very wide portfolio at the White House, but 
you stepped up to the plate after I left, and uh, he was an important member of the team. Now, there's, there's, you know, you talk about the team, like the the reunion, you know, like someone who wins a championship, you know, they're they're coming together. Do you call this a team? And I was like, you, you're always going to be part of that team. And was it a team effort that did this? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's not one person, but is that the way you look at it? Oh, 100%. First of all, I, I always like to say that the Abraham Accord says many parents and grandparents, because there were people that came before us who began down this path. It's one of the reasons I called my book In the Path of Abraham. The path started before us. It continues even after the Abraham Accords were signed. Um, there were many Israeli diplomats who visited these Arab countries. There were many Jewish groups and organizations who visited many of these Arab countries. They started to lay that path. We were incredibly lucky to have leaders who were willing to think outside the box. Obviously, President Trump, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who thought of this idea to a degree before we ended up being able to create it, and the leaders in the Arab countries, both those who signed the Abraham Accords and some of the ones who didn't sign it. So, of course, everyone talks about Saudi Arabia, and the speculation is that they would be the next one to join. I personally, and I, I don't, I don't profess to know anything about the Middle East compared to you, trust me. But I've been there and having met with some of the people, I just came away with the feeling that it wasn't going to happen that soon, that there were just many other reasons. They may, you know, dabble a little bit. They may put their foot in the, in the, in the, in the, in the pool, but they're not going to jump in. Now with what happened with Iran and Iran, you know, and, and China and the whole relationship, is this, does that change anything, you think? Or is that just window dressing? Well, it's hard to say what might have happened if President Trump won a second term, but that's water under the bridge. It's pure speculation at this point, and the Middle East has changed so dramatically since then. I think what we have to do with Saudi Arabia is recognize Saudi Arabia for what it's done. It opened its airspace for Israel flights, which was a big deal. When Oman announced its airspace being open, I'm sure Saudi Arabia was a part of that decision as well. The Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has made some very positive remarks about Israel. So instead of, a, instead of us focusing on if and when they'll sign the Abraham Accords, let's realize they're a country in major transition. The Crown Prince has been very effective at implementing Vision 2030. I go back there with some degree of frequency, and it's really amazing the changes that have happened since I left the White House. But even if I roll the clock back to 2017, to my first visit in May of 2017, the changes are remarkable. In my first visit, I went to a Starbucks, and the Starbucks had a men's entrance, a women's entrance, and a family entrance. Women were largely segregated from society. They weren't driving. Today, you walk around, and women are all over the place. They're in government positions. They're having a good time. It's really a major transition, and that is separate from the projects that he's working on, these unbelievable projects. The country seems to love him, love what he's doing, and I think all of these could only be positive changes for the Middle East and hopefully for Israel. Now, you touched on, I think, or you're about to, the uh, rapprochement with Iran. So right. Certainly, it's something we need to watch. Uh, I don't know how it's going to play out for Israel, but it's important for people like us, Israel supporters, Jews, to realize that this is a decision that the kingdom made for the kingdom, meaning irrespective of how it might concern us, perhaps bother us, if you were the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and you were embarking on this ambitious Vision 2030 and Iran was fomenting violence in your country, throwing rockets at your country and all sorts of other things, I think ultimately it was the smart thing and the right thing for the crown prince to do for Saudi Arabia. And that's his job. Okay. So we'll just have to see. We'll look, uh, 
I've learned that in the Middle East, you never know what's going to happen the next day. And events change things overnight. So, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I think about so many things that have happened there and going there and meeting with groups of people and then coming back the week later and then everything's changed. Right. So I used it, to say it's sort of like playing 12 or 13 dimensional chess. Right. And then every few days, somebody throws all the boards over and you start all over again. <laughs> so I, obviously, uh, Donald Trump has announced that he wants to run for president again. And uh, the polls seem to indicate that he's, he seems to be doing quite well. So if he were to win, would you be interested in joining the administration again? And what capacity would you really like? If you had your ideal job, what would it be? So if I'd be um, lucky enough for him to ask again, I'd probably want the same job. We were uh, very lucky to be able to set policy. Uh, we were very lucky that I worked closely with the National Security Council, the State Department. And while people may complain about a deep state, and there really is a deep state, I write about this in my book. I had colleagues in the State Department and the National Security Council who may have disagreed with me or our policies, President Trump's policies. And we argued it out and we talked about it and they taught me a lot. But ultimately, when we decided what the policy would be, they completely followed the policy and help, up, help us implement the policy. I'm not sure it always works that way in government, but if I were to take that job again, it would be important for me to know that I wouldn't just be a cog in a wheel, but I'd be able to effectuate the policy that the president wants and not be stymied if there are those who disagree with the president and try to block the president from doing what he wants to do. I hear you. So... It was my opinion that when I came back from the UAE, they wanted to work very badly. And they look at this as a, a long-term commitment. And they're very serious about it. I was very happy to see that. First of all, how, how, what's your perception of how is it going? And, you know, could anything derail it at this point? Or do you think it's kind of has its momentum and it's just going to keep going? Well, it does have great momentum. There are a lot of business deals being signed. There's obviously a lot of Israeli tourism. People complain there's not enough Emirati tourism. The, the Emiratis are a fraction of the number of people as Israelis. Uh, Israelis love to travel. It's not that the Emiratis don't love to travel, but they're also accustomed to going to different places. I'm sure over time, Emiratis will travel. But these are not the travel accords, at least with respect to the Emirates. And maybe for the Israelis, because Israelis do love to travel. A lot of friendships are being formed, a lot of culture is being shared, a lot of science, joint science projects are being done. So I think with respect to the Emirates and Bahrain, um, a lot of good is coming. Uh, the same with Morocco. Uh, it's going to take time. Remember, these are countries that for decades have not only not had relationships with Israel, but have been taught certain things about Israel, and therefore they need to unlearn those things and work step-by-step uh, step to build those relationships. But I'm very bullish on where things are going. As far as could anything derail it, sure. You know, if, if there is some return to violence and Israel does what it needs to do, which is protect its citizens, and things get out of hand, uh, even though Israel would be fully justified in that, it could be that some of these countries would have some misgivings if enough pressure is put on them by Palestinians. I hope that doesn't happen. I think the Emirates and Bahrain and probably Morocco fully recognize that Israel has the right to defend itself when there are acts of terror. So I, I'm not particularly worried. I don't lose sleep at night about any kind of derailment. But of course, it would be silly for me to say it won't be derailed. Positive progress, yes, and we have to be careful with it. It's, we're still holding a very, delicate, uh, a very delicate egg in our hands, and hopefully people will steward that egg responsibly. 
Right. No, I agree. Because, look, I think the, the enemies of the Jewish people know the hot buttons. They understand that the Temple Mount and other is issues, uh, you know, they could just flare up. And if they do it, that's really what they want. I mean, that's really their goal. The goal is to try to find ways of really just inflaming the Arab world, even if it's a lie, it doesn't make a difference, inflame them and so on. I certainly got that feeling. But one of the things I came away with, which was interesting, I didn't realize that some of the people were telling me when I was there, some of the businessmen were saying they were a little frustrated with the bureaucracy in Israel. They think they're moving much quicker than a lot of the Israelis are. I was surprised because I figured Israel would move very quickly. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about it. You know better than I do. It, it depends on the deal, but I could understand that frustration. Israel definitely has a very large bureaucracy, and they don't work uh, as quickly as a monarchy could work. So part of it is, you know, some of these countries are monarchies, and Israel is not a monarchy, and there is a bureaucracy. And I hope that Israel takes those concerns into account, because things like that, of course, won't derail the Abraham Accords. But They'll frustrate people, and frustration is never a good thing. I do want to touch, just to go back to what you said about the Temple Mount and the lies, it's really important for everyone to understand that the average person on the street in these Arab countries were taught those lies for decades. Uh, Jews are storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Jews are trying right. to take over, etc., etc. We have to work harder to tell the truth. That's not the case, but we have to understand that this is what they've been fed for decades. They don't necessarily hear otherwise, so we have to work doubly hard to do it. One of my, I don't, I don't want to say worst quotes, but uh, one of the worst things said about me, but not a surprise, is I very often went to the Kotel to pray, to Davin, when I was in government, uh, in my government position, in particular because U.S. officials were discouraged and sometimes really prohibited from visiting the Western Wall as government officials. And I went there to show that the the uh, the Kotel and of course the Temple Mount. I didn't go up to the Temple Mount, but all these things were holy to Jews. They've been holy to Jews for thousands of years, and it's important to tell the truth. After my first visit to Davin at the Kotel, Hamas tweeted something along the lines. I don't remember the exact quote, but there goes Jason Greenblatt, Trump's envoy, defiling the Al Barak Wall, which is what they call the Kotel, with his pig's feet. This is what they say. They spread lies, and we have to fight those lies. We should not give up on fighting those lies and teaching the truth. So how do we do that? Because it seems like it's, sometimes it seems overwhelming. When you want to lie, you can say whatever you want. Truth is harder to make people understand. Right. So my way of doing it is constantly going out in Arab media and meeting people in Arab countries and speaking the truth, not being afraid to speak the truth. Respectful of the fact that there is a mosque up there, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, respectful of the fact that it is holy to them. I don't deny that, but I want them to stop denying what that it is holy to Jews and that it's holy to Jews for thousands of years, that two temples stood there. So what could other people do? Engage, respectfully engage with everybody. By the way, we have this issue in America too. There are plenty of Americans who support organizations like BDS, that anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, frankly, even anti-Palestinian organization, because it harms Palestinians. Fight against them. Fight against them in the media. Fight against them on social media. Engage with people who tell lies, because some of those people actually don't know any different, don't any better. Once you realize that the person is a person who wants to learn and understand, continue to engage. If they're rational and only interested in fighting Jews and fighting Jewish history in Israel or Jerusalem, and you're not going to convince them, then don't waste your time. Move on to the next person. Now, with what's going on in Israel today, 
First of all, I'd like to know your take on the whole situation and where you see how this thing might become resolved in the hopefully the near future. But what impact is it having on the Arab world? And, and I don't know about the Abraham Accords, but certainly on the on the Arab world. What What is their perception of what's going on in Israel today? So there are two schools of thought that I've come across. One is sort of rubbing their hands with Klee. Oh, look, Israel. Everybody says Israel's amazing, amazing, amazing. Look at uh, how Israel's going to fall apart. And that's just based on media distorting it and making it seem like these protests are going to end up tumbling the Jewish state of Israel down. Uh, and those are people I say are intellectually dishonest and against Israel, and you're not going to change their mind. But then there are others who say, look, for all of its faults, these have been largely, extremely largely, and God willing, continue to be peaceful protests, right? It shows what a democracy could be. Whatever we think about judicial reform, whatever we think about the protesters, whatever we think about both sides' um, rhetoric about either the protesters or those uh, who are anti the protesters, these protests have shown that Israel's democracy is strong. And I think to some degree in the Arab world, they recognize that and appreciate that. I don't want to comment on the judicial reform. I'm not smart enough to understand all the ins and outs about it. I follow it to some degree. I certainly follow the protests that are going on. And I hope that the pause has allowed people to collect their thoughts and they're going to approach this next step with respect, with humility, with honesty, uh, with an understanding of what's necessary. But as an American Jew, I don't feel it's my place to tell Israel what to do. No, I agree with you about that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Bibi Netanyahu. I'm sure I know you know him well. I had a, when I interviewed him in one of my podcasts. I had Michael Oren. We were talking a little bit about Bibi, and he was saying that this was the first time that Bibi is actually the person who's the far left of his government. Usually, he's like right in the center the coalition, but now he's really in the far left of his government, and he's in a much weaker position than he's been in a long time, and, and feels that he can't be the Bibi that everyone knew, also because what's going on in his own personal life with, you know, the the, the trial and so on. I mean, what's, what's, what's your feeling about it? It's hard to tell. I do know him well, but what I knew of him was, is already somewhat dated, right? So... I uh, haven't had any meaningful conversations with him over this last number of period, you know, this last number of months at all. I would say he's an extraordinary, pol extraordinarily talented politician, incredibly, incredibly intelligent individual, has Israel first and foremost in his heart and on his mind. So I don't buy into the, uh, he's busy thinking about his, um, his legal jeopardy. I think he's truly interested in helping the Jewish state of Israel thrive but at the same time, I think that they could have done a better job rolling out the judicial reform, uh, recognizing the protests for what they were. Eventually he did, which is why he put a pause on it. And I'm deeply hopeful that over the coming months, they figure out a way through this that uh, makes it easier to get through rather than harder to get through. No, no, I definitely agree with that. Let's look a little bit about American Jewry. We're seeing more and more American Jewish organizations weighing in on what's going on in Israel. I personally don't like to do that at all. I've never done that in any capacity I've had in leadership. I don't think it's my right as an American Jew to tell Israel what to do, but we're seeing more of that now. We're seeing um, more American Jews who are now distancing themselves a little bit from Israel, the, the connection. First of all, what do you think we could do to, to change I'm always about change. I don't want to talk about what's wrong. Let's talk about what we can do to fix it. So what do you think we can do to fix American Jewry so that they have a much closer, deeper connection with Israel and its people? 
Well, first and foremost, teaching people not to allow Israel to be used as a political football, which we're seeing a lot of now, but we've certainly seen it over the, you know, let's say the last 10 years. Uh, that's very, very bad for Israel. It's certainly bad for American Jewry, and it's bad for America generally. So try to convince people not to allow Israel to be used as a political football. The second is education. For a while, so many Americans, or American Jews, but Americans probably as well, who spoke out about judicial reform, my best guess is they were not so well-versed in the intricacies and nuances of the judicial reform package. That doesn't mean they don't have a right to have an opinion on it, but I hope those that have an opinion on it have their opinion, not because they might dislike or hate Bibi Netanyahu or they hate members of Bibi Netanyahu's coalition, but rather they have they have a full understanding of what's going on before they speak out. I'm of two minds when it comes to speaking out. I said earlier to one of your earlier questions, I don't think it's appropriate for me to speak out because I'm not an Israeli. At the same time, I recognize that Israelis are always asking us, and we feel the need to stand up for Israel. So many American Jews and evangelicals feel if they're out there standing up for Israel all the time, they certainly have a right to have an opinion about what's going on in Israel. And that's logical, and it makes sense. I can't argue with that. I have no effective, honest argument with that. So I understand, you know, I'm sending a mixed message, which is I personally don't think it's appropriate for me to weigh in on judicial reform. But at the same time, I respect those who feel that if over the years they have said many things to support Israel, and if they are truly knowledgeable about judicial reform, they should have that right. And, you know, I understand that. What about you know, assimilation in America. Any thoughts on what we can do to slow it down? I mean, we're not going to stop it, but could we slow it down and get to the point? I mean, I look at, you know, I look at today, we, we're sitting here, you know, 75 years in Israel, and basically the American population in 75 years, American Jewish population hasn't grown. It's really stagnated compared to uh, the general population, probably grown almost three times from 1948. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, look, assimilation, anti-Semitism, anti-Israel sentiment, these are all major challenges of today's American jury. In many ways, we've done a remarkable job with American jury because we're thriving here like never before. In many ways, we have not done a great job because assimilation is high, anti-Semitism is high, anti-Israel sentiment or negative intel Israel sentiment not based on truth is high. Uh, I think we need to do better. How we do better, I'm not sure. There are many great organizations out there. You mentioned the Conference of Presidents, of which you're a part of. That's one. And the constituent organizations within the conference. Um, I think we need to do better. Okay. Well, listen, we've gotten to a lot of heavy topics, but I want to end uh, this interview with something I do. I call it the lightning round. Basically, no script. Just to ask you some questions. If you could give me the first thought. If you want to pass on, you could pass on it. But let's go. One, greatest person you ever met? My wife. She She's a psychiatrist. She specializes in women's emotional health. We have this funny thing between us because when I worked for Trump for 20 years, I loved what I did, as I said, but I would often come home and say, you know, all I do is push papers around every day. You literally help put families back together again. You help people get on with their lives. Now she has a laugh and said, well, honey, for 20 years you did that, but then you helped make peace in the Middle East. So uh, <laughs> uh, she, she's an amazing person, the real woman behind the man. That's great to hear. What about the greatest person who ever lived? Who do you think that was? Uh, that's that's what I'm going to pass on. There's just too many. I have great, great examples, but too many. Okay. What about one person that you would like to meet who you haven't met yet? Probably Moshe Rabbeinu. I think that understanding the challenges of being a Jewish leader, 
Uh, and, you know, they used to say the Jews are Amkshara for stubborn neck right. people, right. which is true. Uh, I'm not sure we're the only stubborn neck people, but, you know, learning from him how he managed at a time of, you know, uh, just unbelievable upheaval and tremendous promise. Uh, I think that all of us can learn tremendous amounts from him. Who's the best speaker you ever heard? Uh, I am a big fan of Churchill speeches, but okay. um, I'm also a big fan of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, obviously no longer alive. I'm a, a voracious reader of his work, also loved his speaking. So, you know, that's more modern. One's a little bit less modern, but still fairly modern. What about the greatest leader you ever met? Look, I was privileged to meet in person and deal with for over countless, countless hours, numerous leaders here in America and the Middle East. And uh, I was privileged to work for President Trump, I think, despite people uh, having very negative feelings about him. Uh, he pulled off some amazing things for the United States, some amazing things for the Middle East. I think Bibi Netanyahu was a tremendous leader. And I'm a fan of some of the Middle Eastern leaders who were extraordinarily courageous taking that step to either sign the Abraham Accords or at least support the Abraham Accords from behind. What about your favorite Chag? Probably Sukkot. Love sitting really? out there in the Sukkot with my family. Love what it represents. Oh, wow. uh, love the symbolism. You know, love everything about it. So I've, obviously you've traveled all over. Is there any place you'd like to go that you haven't been to yet? I'd like to visit some of the Arab countries I haven't yet had the privilege of visiting, but I'll tell you that this year, for the first time, I took some of my family to Saudi Arabia and Qatar for yeshiva break, that winter break that we have in the yeshiva day right. school system in January. If you told me in 2017 that in a couple of years I'd be going to Saudi Arabia and Qatar for winter break, I would have told you you were a little bit, uh, you know, something was wrong with you, right? We had an unbelievable time. I wore my kippah there. One of my sons who was with us, because I only had one son with me this time, he wore his kippah. We wore it openly. And we had, you know, an amazing time there. But I'd like to okay. see more of the Arab world. That would be wonderful. Let me ask you one, one more question. What's your favorite food on Shabbos? <laughs> my wife happens to be a great cook. You know, we don't have a go-to meal. She cooks, uh, she knows that I'm a foodie, so she tries to change it up. And most of what she likes, I love. But most of what she cooks, I should say, I love, but I don't have a particularly favorite Shabbos food. Okay. Well, listen, Jason, it was absolutely a pleasure having you. I'm sure everyone's going to enjoy the interview. There's so many great things to say. And, and really, I really I just admire what you've done. Like your wife said, yeah, you, you, you shuffle some papers, then you made, me, you made peace in the Middle East. Okay. That's an incredible thing. I don't think people realize it. And when I went to the United Arab Emirates and I walked around and I'm wearing my kippah and I'm talking to people... And, and I'm eating kosher, and, and people are telling me that they, they really want to have a warm peace with Israel, not a cold peace. I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of Donald Trump. I'm thinking about the team. Whatever happens in history will record that what you did was an incredible thing. So, Yashi Kawach to you. Thank you so much, and good health to you, and continued success in everything you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.